0: Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover syphilis infection. Although the incidence of syphilis decreased markedly with the discovery of antibiotics, it nevertheless remains a formidable foe. On the one hand, there are several reasons why one would expect the incidence to continue to decrease, and that's the clinical manifestations of primary and secondary syphilis have remained unchanged since their original description. Also, there's a better informed, health-conscious public that's more likely to seek early treatment for suspicious lesions. Additionally, the stigma of syphilis is considered less in today's society. And lastly, it's recommended that there be screening programs which can identify patients at earlier, more treatable stages of disease. On the other hand, the disease still persists, with some claim it's due to changing sexual attitudes and the increased use of antibiotics, corticosteroids, and immunosuppressants resulting in atypical presentations of the disease. Syphilis remains one of medicine's great challenges. The causative agent, the spirochetrepanema pallidum, has failed to develop any significant resistance to penicillin. So under those circumstances, you would expect the incidence of the disease to fall to progressively lower and lower levels until it becomes almost eradicated. But that has not been the case. Since reporting began in 1941, the incidence rates for syphilis have demonstrated interesting trends with significant variations based upon gender, geography, age, race, and ethnicity. The incidence rates for congenital syphilis generally mirror those of rates for women with a 1-2 to year lag. So, after 14 years of decline recently, the rate of congenital syphilis increased 3.7% between 2005 and 2006. And most recently, up to reporting of data in 2015, states have noted a continued increase in the rates of syphilis. Overall, however, there has been a 74% reduction in the rate of congenital syphilis since 1996, likely due to improved prenatal screening. Alright, next, let's cover the clinical manifestations and stages of the disease. primary syphilis is characterized by the classic Hunterian chancre, a painless ulcer that can develop 10 to 90 days after exposure, but the average is around 21 days. Treponema pallidum has a propensity for moist areas, and so is likely to be found wherever mucous membranes are a frequent site of sexual contact, principally the genital canal, the anal rectal area, and the oropharynx. If untreated, the chancre will usually heal in three to six weeks and occasionally will leave a scar. Secondary syphilis appears three weeks to six months after the primary lesion. The systematic nature of the disease is much more obvious in the secondary stage. In addition to constitutional symptoms like malaise and low-grade fever, patients may demonstrate one of several varieties of non-puritic rashes, either on the soles of the feet or the palms of the hands traditionally. It can also include lymphadenitis, mucus patches, condylomalata, neurological involvement, alopecia, or less frequently involvement of the bone, liver, spleen, or the kidneys. Latent syphilis is the hidden stage and it's sometimes broken down into early latent, which is the first year after infection, and late latent, greater than one year after infection. During this stage, the symptoms of primary and second syphilis disappear although serological tests remain positive and pregnant women may infect their developing fetuses in this time. Late syphilis, also known as tertiary syphilis or neurosyphilis, can appear 3 to 20 years after the primary infection in 15 to 20% of untreated patients. With the widespread use of antibiotics, this late stage of syphilis has become very uncommon and is not much seen in the U.S. anymore. Regarding diagnosis, dark field examination to detect treponema pallidum directly from lesions or exudate or tissue is a definitive method for diagnosis of early syphilis, but this is just not done very much anymore. There are non-specific serum tests and specific tests for syphilis. The nonspecific tests usually result in a titer being positive, either the rapid plasma reagent or the RPR or the venereal disease research lab, the VDRL. If these are positive and suspicion is present for syphilis, then a confirmation serum test must be done, either the microhemagglutination for treponema pallidum assay, also known as MHATP, or the fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, which is the FTA-ABS. Remember that low-level or low-titer positive tests of RPR, like a titer under 1 to 8, can occur in other autoimmune conditions. Primarily, things like systemic lupus erythromatosis can be known as carrying a risk of a false positive RPR test. Regarding treatment, Penicillin G, administered parentarily, is the preferred drug for treating persons in all stages of syphilis. The preparation used, benzathine, aqueous procaine, or aqueous crystalline, dosage and length of treatment depend on the stage and clinical manifestation of the disease. Treatment for late-latent syphilis and tertiary syphilis require a longer duration of therapy because organisms, theoretically, might be dividing more slowly. Now, longer-treatment duration, are required for persons with latent syphilis of unknown duration to ensure that those who did not acquire syphilis within the preceding year are adequately treated. For primary and secondary syphilis, parenteral penicillin G has been used effectively to achieve clinical resolution, the healing of lesions, and prevention of sexual transmission, and to prevent late sequelae. However, no comparative trials have been conducted to guide the selection of the optimal penicillin regimen. But here is what the CDC recommends. For primary and secondary syphilis for adults, benzathine penicillin G, 2.4 million units, I am in a single dose. Now regarding latent syphilis Because latent syphilis is not transmitted sexually The objective of treating persons in this stage of disease Is to prevent complications and transmission From a pregnant woman to her fetus Although clinical experience supports the effectiveness of penicillin In achieving this goal Limited evidence is available to guide which choice of penicillin Or the specific duration But we'll cover the CDC recommendations next And now we'll cover specific pregnancy risks with transmission in the next section. But for early latent syphilis, the recommended regimen by the CDC is benzathine penicillin G 2.4 million units IM in a single dose. Now remember that this is the same regimen that was used for primary and secondary. But for late latent syphilis or syphilis of unknown duration, the treatment is benzathine penicillin G 7.2 million units administered as three doses of 2.4 million units IM each at one week interval. No discussion about the treatment of syphilis is complete without a quick review of the Jarix herxheimer reaction. The Jarix herxheimer reaction is an acute febrile reaction frequently accompanied by headaches, myalgias, fever, and other symptoms that can occur within the first 24 hours after the initiation of any therapy for syphilis. Patients should be informed about this possible adverse reaction and how to manage it if it occurs. The Jarix herxheimer reaction occurs most frequently among persons who have early syphilis, Presumably because bacterial burdens are highest during these early stages. Antipyretics can be used to manage symptoms, but they have not proven to prevent this reaction. The jarex herxheimer reaction might also induce early labor or cause fetal distress in pregnant women, but this should not prevent or delay therapy for syphilis. For those with penicillin allergies, data to support the use of alternatives to penicillin in the treatment of primary and secondary syphilis are actually limited. However, several therapies might be effective in the non-pregnant penicillin allergic patients who have primary or secondary syphilis. Regimens of doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for 14 days, or tetracycline, 500 milligrams four times daily for 14 days, have been used for many years. Now remember, this is only non-pregnant patients. Pregnant women with primary or secondary syphilis who are allergic to penicillin should be desensitized and still treated with penicillin. Okay, now we've covered treatment for primary and secondary syphilis, as well as early latent, late latent, and syphilis of unknown duration. What about tertiary syphilis? Well, tertiary syphilis refers to gummas and cardiovascular syphilis, but not to neurosyphilis. We'll cover neurosyphilis in just a moment. For tertiary syphilis with normal CSF examination, the treatment recommended is benzathine penicillin G, 7.2 million units, administered as three doses of two. million units IM each at one week interval. All right, now let's cover neurosyphilis. CNS involvement can occur during any stage of syphilis, and CSF laboratory abnormalities are common in persons with early syphilis, even in the absence of clinical neurological findings. Now, no evidence exists to support variation from the recommended treatments for syphilis at any stage for persons without clinical neurological findings, with the exception of tertiary syphilis. Now, if clinical evidence of neurological involvement is observed, like cognitive dysfunction, motor or sensory defects, ophthalmic or auditory symptoms, and even cranial nerve palsies or stroke, a CSF Examination should be performed. The recommended regimen for neurosyphilis and ocular syphilis is aqueous crystalline penicillin G, 18 to 24 million units per day, administered as 3 to 4 million units IV every 4 hours or by continuous infusion for 10 to 14 days. Okay, so here's a clinical pearl. Notice that the duration of the recommended regimen for neurosyphilis is shorter than the duration of the regimen used for latent syphilis. Therefore, benzathine penicillin, 2.4 million units IM, once per week for up to three weeks can be considered as after completion of these neurosyphilis treatment regimens to provide a comparable total duration of therapy. Once again, if treatment is being done for neurosyphilis, which can happen at any stage of syphilis, then it can be considered adequate and recommended to give 2.4 million units I am once a week for three weeks after the completion of neurosyphilis in order to complete a total duration of therapy. Okay, next let's talk about the implications for pregnancy as we wrap up this podcast. The clinical manifestations of primary and secondary syphilis are the same in the pregnant patient as in the non-pregnant. The principles of management have to do with early diagnosis and treatment in an effort to prevent fetal infection. It was once believed that the spirochete organism could not cross the placenta, Prior to 16 weeks. We now know that is not true. Examination of early abortuses has found that T. pallidum can be found in placental tissue as early as 6 weeks. Now, the fetus may actually escape infection, and this is more likely to happen if the mother has been infected for a long time or if she contracts the disease very late in pregnancy. But this information is really of academic interest only because once a diagnosis of syphilis in pregnancy is confirmed, the patient patients should be treated regardless of the time since infection. Overall, the risk of transplacental infection of the fetus is about 60-80% to and the likelihood of fetal infection increases with increasing gestational age. Untreated primary or secondary syphilis in the mother usually is transmitted, but latent or tertiary syphilis is transmitted in only about 20% of cases. Untreated syphilis in pregnancy is also associated with a significant risk of stillbirth and neonatal death. In infected neonates, manifestations of syphilis are classified as early congenital, that's birth through age 2, and late congenital syphilis, which are symptoms after the age of 2 years. Early congenital syphilis commonly manifest during the first three months of life. Manifestations can include a characteristic vesiculobulbous eruption or a macular copper-colored rash on the palms and soles and papular lesions around the nose and mouth and in the diaper area. The infant may fail to thrive and have a characteristic mucopurulent or blood-stained nasal discharge causing sniffles. A few infants develop meningitis or eye infection or hydrocephalus or seizures and others may be intellectually disabled. Within the first eight months of life, osteochondritis, especially of the long bones and the ribs, may cause pseudoparalysis of the limbs with characteristic radiological changes in the bones. Late congenital syphilis typically manifests after two years of life and causes gummatous ulcers that tend to involve the nose, septum and hard palate, and periosteal lesions that result in saber shins. Again, that's a clinical pearl. Remember, saber shins and bossing of the frontal and the parietal bones. Neurosyphilis is usually asymptomatic, but juvenile paresis and tabes dorsalis may occur. Optic atrophy, sometimes leading to blindness, can also occur. In Interstitial keratitis, this is the most common eye lesion, frequently recurs, often resulting in corneal scarring. Sensorineural deafness, which is often progressive, may appear at any age. Now, Hutchinson incisors mulberry molars, and perioral fissures and maldevelopment of the maxilla resulting in a bulldog facies are characteristic if infrequent sequelae. Remember, Hutchinson's incisors, mulberry molars, and perioral fissures are all signs of late congenital syphilis. Well, that wraps up our discussion covering syphilitic infection. We'll see you next time.